So yeah, here we are at the Trafalgar Tavern in the horseshoe bend of the River Thames. Um, lovely venue, festooned, absolutely festooned with Battle of Trafalgar memorabilia. I'm sat here with columnists for New Statesman and regular on Talking Politics, Helen Thompson. Helen, thank you for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, Jack. What led you to choose Trafalgar Tavern in Greenwich? Well, I've been coming here, I have been trying to, was trying to figure it out since 2004, 2005. Uh, I come every year at least once for my birthday with my um, family. Uh, I came, I think, initially for Dickens reasons, as um, I think I've said to people on talking on pol- talking politics before. I'm a, a massive Dickens fan, and this um, pub um, and its food, particularly White Bay, uh, features as the as the scene for the wedding breakfast in our mutual friend. And I came, and I absolutely loved it. I like old London pubs generally, and with with some connection to the history of the city and I particularly like this one and and the grapes which has also got strong Dickens connections in in Limehouse that essentially sit in the river at high tide. I I get exactly what you mean there is quite a dim lit Dickensian ramble just outside of the entrance to this pub. It's a it's a pretty interesting place in its in its own right and since then it's not true it wasn't true at the time I've also developed a kind of um, amateur interest shall we say in the way in which Nelson is memorialized in this country in terms of what it says about British history, what it says about English history and the tension between those things. So the Nelson stuff actually interests me quite a lot as well. This episode goes slightly against the grain of current political debate, particularly what's going on in the UK. Because the political anxieties we've seen emerge in the West over the last 10 years have become so all-consuming, I thought it would be a good idea to try to take the long view of history and uh, impose some perspective from that. Nowadays, when the subject of the decline of the West comes up, there is a recognition for what that refers to. And yet, in our culture, there is, I think, a belief that if anything's going to destroy or undermine Western values, it's going to be from within Western societies. I'm not sure the West is entirely master of its own fate anymore. So let me start by asking, to what extent do you think the West overestimates the control it has to shape the future, be it in its own image or otherwise? The basic answer is I think that, that um, we do seriously overestimate our ability to um, control our own fate, let alone um, anybody else's. I mean, I think that we do have to try and think of what we mean when we say the West and what it would mean to say that the West could control its own fate in some respects. And that gets us quite quickly, obviously, to the question of the United States. And I think that where the United States is concerned, that there is this paradox, which says a lot about the politics, or the international politics, I should say, of the last um, 10 years or so, which is, on the one hand, if you look at American power in military terms, it's been near disastrous and obviously the, the centrepiece, if you like, of the disaster has been the Middle East and it's gone on for longer than just the last 10 years. It goes back to the, the failure and um, the difficulties of the Iraq war in, in 2003. But if you look in other spheres, and in particular in regard to the dollar and in regard to energy, the United States actually has a lot more power than it did in 2008. 
It does on the energy front because of shale, gas and oil production. So the United States is an energy superpower, again, something which it wasn't in the pre-2008 um, world. And the way in which the, the Federal Reserve Board essentially had to rescue European banks in particular made it very clear that the world is still run by dollars or via dollars and that actually that the dollar dependency um, of not just banks but actually lots of large corporations that want to do business in the United States uh, matters and I'd say that these these two things the shale side of it and the, the, the finance dollar side of it really came together in the ability of the United States over the last um, since about 2011 to, to run a more confrontational policy with Iran because even before the although Obama moved to reaching the nuclear agreement with Iran the, the what preceded that was a sanction regime against Iran that was much tougher than being put in place before and that's what brought Iran to the negotiating table about the nuclear deal and now um, Trump would like to be more confrontational with Iran again and, and thinks that the, the ability that the United States has to keep oil prices from going too high if Iranian oil supply is taken out of um, the market gives him an opportunity. Now, I think that he actually then overestimates American capacity in that respect and he kind of shows that by the fact that he shows so clearly that he is worried about rising um, oil, oil um, prices. So, in one sense, if you think about it, in relation to the United States, in relation to American power, the question is, 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 well, how much American power can be redeployed, can now be deployed to make the world um, the way that the United States at least, or this American president's, and, and obviously that's a contested question, who's going to be the American president after this term of office of Donald Trump's as, as finished might, might, um, might want it to be. And I think that what is striking, though, in the face of all the dissensus that there is about pretty much every other matter in American politics, whether it be about foreign policy or it be about domestic politics, the one area where there is actually consensus is China. There is an understanding that actually that the U.S. has got itself into a pretty difficult position with China because it now wants to reverse direction from the one that it took in the 1990s about integrating China into the international economy and thinking that there weren't consequences for Chinese military power from that kind of integration. Now, you know, the consensus generally in, in, in Washington is, is that that was a big error of judgment and that a different kind of strategy in regard to China. And I would say that means that, you know, th there is some sense in which it isn't just a personal whim of, you know, instincts of Trump's that America is moving back to looking like a, a power that's trying to do great power politics in the sense of dealing with you know m its major competitors rather than concentrating on a part of the world where there isn't actually a, 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 a if you like not a superpower because only the United States is really a superpower but a, 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 a first tier power Hi hey, everyone Hi. We'd both like to order yeah. the white bait as a starter I think I will go for the fillet steak. Can I have it rare, please? Can I have the roasted aubergine, actually? Having said I was going to have the prawn linguine. Thank you very much. You wrote recently about the distorting effect that the 90s did, in fact, have on the West perspective, how it bred all sorts of assumptions, including that the West 
could contain the rise of China and rein it into the international rules-based order. It seems funny now to think that that was ever considered possible. Could you take us through how economic realities conspired to make that the case and just how the West got so many things wrong in the end? Let's start with the idea that, um, which is, I think, proven wrong, that economic interdependence and in some sense economic interdependence generating fear was going to act as the constraining um, force on the US-China relationship and would therefore um, protect, in some sense, some version at least of the international economic order of the 1990s. Now, if you go to the, by the mid-2000s, the version of that argument, which Lawrence Summers called the, you know, the balance of financial terror, um, you know, like was, is that the United States was constrained by the fact it was borrowing as much money as it was from China and China was constrained by the fact um, that its export-led economy was dependent on American markets. There are several ways in which in which that turned out not to be right and I'll just take um, one of them and that was this notion that the Chinese couldn't inflict any damage on the United States um, in regard to holding its debt or from holding its debt because of its the trade consequences um, for it. So I would say that you know, that China actually allied in this case to the Japan you know, did inflict some damage on the United States in 2008 um, by selling American debt. It's just that it didn't sell treasury bonds. They sell the debt of the two huge mortgage corporations, Fannie Mae and, and Freddie Mac, and played. And essentially, um, there was such a crisis of confidence of Chinese and Japanese creditors in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that that pushed those corporations, which, which had other problems as well, to the point where the United States government had to guarantee their debt. And you've got the Chinese at that point talking in some pretty apocalyptic terms of what would have happened if the Americans hadn't guaranteed that debt of Fannie Mae um, and Freddie Mac. What so, sort of things were they saying at the time? Basically, they would say the whole international economic order is at risk if, if, if it's the case um, that this debt isn't guaranteed. If, if this, if this debt isn't guaranteed, I, I think, though, that it isn't just the case that the both sides are constrained. Thesis turned out not to be, to be right because now you can say the Americans in pushing on the trade side and not being constrained by their supposed debt dependency um, on China. It was also the case, I think, that something else was being missed, not necessarily by the policymakers, I think, but um, certainly in the ways in which these issues were talked about publicly, was that China's economic rise and its the massive increase in its energy demand was having a huge effect on the price of oil which was extraordinarily high in the summer of 2008, reaching nearly $150 a barrel. And that played a crucial part in pushing Western economies into recession in that year, independently of the financial crisis. It then deepened those recessions, um, certainly. Yeah, the oil story is one that goes largely untold. But I think the oil story uh, is is pretty central to what happened in, in 2008. Um, eight. So, in a sense, what we then end up with in the post-2008 world is, is we have simultaneously a financial crisis 
that the central banks respond to by um, quantitative easing and zero interest rates. And as it happens, that also helps deal with the energy side of things that China's economic rise has created as a problem, or at least as a problem for everybody else, because those same extremely accommodative monetary conditions are what make it possible for US shale production to take off. So in one sense, there's a certain fortuitousness about some of the things that happened in 2008 about dealing with the energy side um, of things, but it then, I think, has a whole set of other disruptive consequences because it causes all kinds of difficulties for Saudi Arabia, America becoming um, not self-sufficient in oil, but needing to import much less oil than it did means that China becomes the largest importer of oil in the world. And then if you're Saudi Arabia, you're kind of caught between a long-standing relationship with the United States and the value of selling more oil to China on what might turn out to be Chinese terms and Americans being very unhappy about that. So this energy question has still got very considerable disruptive capacity. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Fantastic. How convinced are you in this idea of the Chinese century? I know it's an idea that comes into the title of this episode. Are you sceptical about it or do you think it's quite a reasonable notion to entertain? I wouldn't use it, but I I mean, I see why one might. I think the thing that we we have to understand is, is that China's return and it is really a return rather than a rise has quite fundamentally changed the economic and the political and the geopolitical world in which we live and those consequences are going to be you know like ongoing yes they're not they're they're not they're not going to go away now how that will play out in terms of if you like the geopolitical struggle between the United States as the dominant power and China in this sense I can think I think say is the rising power and again what the time frames of that might be that I think is, it, it, it is pretty difficult um, to think about and as I say I think it's made harder to think about than previous um, threats to the dominant power um and I'm, I'm, I'm using that in geopolitical language. I'm not trying to be just simply negative about China in this um, respect. Because as I said earlier, what's happening with American power is strange because it's going in two different directions at the same time, in, in, you know, in different um, areas. Now, there's one way of looking at it, which would be to say, look, if we go back to energy, most of the cheaply accessible oil that remains in the world is in Eurasia. America's a non-Eurasian power that's having what may well be a a relatively short-lived in any sort of long-term perspective burst of energy production via shale that will play itself out. And that China is a Eurasian power that is thinking as a Eurasian power and trying to build, you know, like, an economic sphere of influence in some sense across um, Eurasia via one belt um, one road is in a stronger position then in the long term than the United States is on the other hand the the financial side of it the dollar side of it um, the fact that China 
actually outside you know Hong Kong has to still use capital controls that American monetary policy can cause havoc in China as was demonstrated in 2015 when the Fed rose, raised interest rates for the first time all of these might say well really China's going to be <laughs> the most important player geopolitically over the next 40-50 years how is that compatible with a an international financial system that is so US centric and 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 I think that it which of those is most important or will be most important in the end and how that also particularly the energy one intersects with other questions including obviously climate change um, is again quite difficult is quite difficult to think about you mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm curious to understand what features of this project you think are most likely to tip the scale of power globally. I suspect Iran yeah. will play a big part in this. I think Iran is probably central to the geopolitical dynamics that the One Belt, One, Belt, One Road um, project has um, let loose. I mean, the only other thing I would say is, is that but this could have happened without One Belt, One Road, and I think it was happening anyway. Um, is a more cooperation between China and Russia. But I don't think you needed more, uh, uh, not quite a strategic alliance, but moving in that direction. But I don't think you needed one belt, one road um, for that. Um, I think the, the basic fact of China's energy needs and Russia's ability to provide for them to a significant extent um, would have ensured that growing closeness or some kind of access anyway regardless of what China had done in relation to One Belt One Road I think One Belt One Road puts Iran into the centre of things now and, and, and that partly is simply a geographical fact of where Iran um, is situated um, and um, Iran's also position as having oil and gas so one way of looking at it would be to say that you've got a situation where on the one hand you've got the United States which is um, trying well I don't know whether it's trying to have a war with Iran but it's certainly up in the ante on a confrontation um, with Iran and on the other side you've got China that's busy trying to have as much trade and create as much infrastructure for Iran as it as it can so you've got two completely different approaches to how to deal with the geopolitical issue that is Iran and then you've got the fact that on the energy side of it that Iran's Middle Eastern rival Saudi Arabia is one of the three main oil producers in the world with it having a complicated and now turbulent relationship with the United States not least as America's shale um, uh, production so it isn't just that Iran matters in geographical terms for one belt one road uh, in terms of what China's trying to do it also matters in terms of the balance of power in the Middle East uh, in energy terms which matters to China a great deal too given that China is now the world's largest import, single largest importer of oil 
we were never going to get through this without talking about Brexit. So to bring it round to that briefly, there's obviously been lots of speculation about what a no-deal withdrawal could mean after October the 31st. In that event, how might the UK's relationship to China change? I think one of the, the interesting thing about Britain in this respect, prior to the referendum, um, was that the coalition government it was sort of carried on, I think, under the um, the, the majority Conservative government until um, Cameron um, resigned, had been quite keen on positioning London as a financial player in relation to One Belt, One Road. And indeed, seeing that, in, and also in terms of being... Uh, the European Financial Centre for offshore renminbi um, trading. So, and I think Osborne was trying to was trying to think in strategic terms about those issues of saying that that was the role that that Britain could play, and it was very much a sort of a finance centred um, role. And he was willing to court quite a lot of anger from the or provoke quite a lot of anger from the Obama administration um, about the the US sorry the UK um, China um, relationship now you could say one way of looking at it would be to say well if London takes a hit on its the city takes a hit on its European business of some kind though I think that that is somewhat overestimated how what the scale of that is likely um, to be then doubling down on the let's be the financier, the European financier of the one belt, one road, it, it, it might, might look like an attractive proposition for uh, certainly for a future Conservative government, um, if there were one. So I, I, I think that's, that, that's one option. I, I think the problem that Brexit and a breakdown of relations with the EU would create is that it's it's quite difficult to see how there can be much coherent European response to the China issue without the larger European powers working together. Now, I'll put a caveat to that too, in that you can already see differences in, because of the German position um, and that if it's the case that, you know, it would appear the, the case that the French would rather like, the, the Macron would rather like Merkel to be a bit tougher with the Chinese and actually there might be more common ground between Britain and France over this than there is between France and, and Germany. And obviously for Britain, the Hong Kong question has a different significance and, um, than it does for Germany and, and, and France. So if no deal leads to uh, really serious complications on the security side of cooperation with the other European states, then I can see it would cause quite some problems for trying to develop a a coherent British approach to, to, to China. That's really interesting. Okay, so we've done the B word. Now, moving on to equally problematic D words, democracy. You mentioned Hong Kong just then. It's a word that's been taken hostage on pretty much all sides of political debate in the UK. Um, but cut to Hong Kong, and there we are seeing a fight for democracy that is both literal and, importantly, unified. 
protesters still hope that political pressure from the UK and its allies could force the Chinese Communist Party to rethink Hong Kong independence. It's clear, though, that the party has no intention of doing that. It's already said that the one country, two systems agreement is no longer relevant today. What are we to make of this? I think this is one place where some of the financial constraint issues do come into play. Um, you know, that Hong Kong is China's financial gateway to the world um, is that the other financial centre it has in, in Shanghai Shanghai is subject to Chinese capital controls obviously because it's part of um, China proper so to speak or just part of China Hong Kong isn't Hong Kong has its own currency in the, in the Hong Kong um, dollar it also has you know, considerable uses for the Chinese elite as a place in terms of the, the, you know, the mobility of their own money. So once you factor in as well that China has you know, economic problems at the moment that are significantly, at least shall we say, financial, and that you know, it's sitting on, a, in some sense, a great big debt bubble, I think it's perhaps more constrained than people think, the Chinese government, I mean by that, in the way that it can deal with the with the Hong Kong issue in terms of moving to a major, major clampdown, which is a bit ironic, you know, given the way it was supposed to be America's debt dependency on China prior to 2008 that was supposed to get it be, for it to be constrained. It may be that it's China's dollar debt dependency that actually will act as the, is acting as the constraining force on the Hong Kong situation. Much of what we've spoken about here, I would argue, comes down to the idea of sacrifice. You wrote recently that based on what history tells us, the politics of sacrifice should apply to times like ours, but that ever since the end of the Second World War, Western liberal democracies have been bent on trying to avoid that. What might the West have to forfeit in order to maintain stability? Is it this idea of infinite growth is it democracy as we understand it? Is it the ability to pressure other countries on their human rights records? I mean, what would you say is the, the thing that has to give? I think that one thing that has to give, and in some sense is giving, is the idea of progress in a general sense. And I, I mean by that, not just a question of ever more economic growth, but the idea that the future unfolds in ways that keep getting better. I think that that, worldview was part of actually of the illusions of the 90s it's not the first time it appeared obviously but that it was part of the, of the illusions of the of the 90s i mean tony blair is a good example of someone i think he was sort of soaked in that language of, of progress in the ways that which he talked when he was prime minister you know political choices are in themselves much tougher than the let's call it the tony blair worldview would would have us think now I know in one sense he liked to think that he was the one who's making like tough choices over Iraq and that was part of his rhetoric to the I'm here to make tough choices but they never seem to involve him sacrificing his worldview um, and that faith in progress I think that the idea that the future just keeps get, getting better and better you know is immediately exposed once we start thinking about climate change and I think that at the same time, there was a tendency 
which again I think was evident in the 90s in the West to think that what was happening in the 90s was that some version of universal history under Western leadership was materialising, you know, like in front of us. There weren't enough people taking seriously the idea that China was going to return as a power on something like Chinese terms uh, and not on terms settled by the United States or liberals or anybody else. So I think that in some sense the sacrifice involved is a sacrifice of our presumptions and our illusions. Now, I think there are also you know, sacrifices in relation to the climate change um, issues. I think that you know, the idea that, that there's some axiomatic reason why we can have exactly the same standard of living um, with alternative energy sources as we have with fossil fuel energy sources need some thinking about. And there's the going assumption at the moment, isn't it, that everything will stay the same? Yeah. We can have the world as it is. It's just fueled by different energy. I doubt, in fact, I very, very, very much doubt that that is true. I think, though, that there are good reasons why in Western politics there was an aversion to thinking in terms of sacrificing in politics because sacrifice you know if you look the language of, uh, of sacrifice if you look um, historically has been used to justify some of the you know the most horrendous crimes against humanity that you know have been have been committed I mean that you know the Nazis and the, the Soviets were in their different ways keen on the the language of sacrifice as were the French revolutionaries for that matter so that's why I think that in some sense that after the Second World War that liberal democratic politics moves away from this kind of language because it's, it's saying, well, we need to put so much between ourselves and what had gone before in the first part of the 20th century. And in that sense, a lot of politics became, you know, ultimately in Western democracies about, you know, providing material prosperity and physical security and, and don't have too many excitable dreams about what else it can realise because that's where you start getting the state to start sacrificing people's lives when it starts having many more um, ambitious ideas about what politics can um, realise. We now live in a political world not where we're going back to the kinds of risks of Nazism and Soviet communism as such but that we have to find some, if you like, sane way to think about sacrifice and not assume that we can have a politics in which we just keep adding and adding and adding Helen Thompson thank you very much thank you it's been a pleasure 